0: had enough of the been there done that ideas tired of too much talk and so little action rewind now and welcome to transformation and change radio with dr kathy obear where the vision of true equity inclusion courage and purpose meet powerfully dr kathy delivers with dynamic engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now.
1: Thank you for joining us today at Center for Transformation and Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear, she, they, pronouns. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Sources Mendez from the Campus Transformational Justice Project, among other things. And I have to say, and then I'll do a bio, Sources, I could not be more excited to be here learning with you because I work with organizations to think about organizational change, conflict mediation. But when I started hearing more about you and transformational justice, abolitionist approaches, I was like, I didn't even know, I barely understand transformative justice. And so Dr. Circes Mendez, vice chair, associate professor, women, gender studies and queer studies with affiliate faculty, African-American studies, Cal State University, Fullerton, Just such dear colleagues and friends. I was reflecting that when I was going to college four decades ago, none of this was at the college I was. And would I be different if I had A, been attracted to and B, learned with. But you're a popular educator, organizer, decolonial feminist philosopher, got my attention. And then founder of the Campus Transformative Justice Project that started in 2017 in the aftermath all the horrific dynamics related to Larry Nasser, and mm-hmm. the silence, collusion, participation that we may have seen replicated so many places, including LSU is in the news today, as well as Oregon state president who was the former president there. And mm-hmm. so the dynamics that you have had on the ground working with are in most every organization that I know that was at Michigan State, and you were committed to abolitionist intersectional approaches to addressing sexual assault, gender-based, gender-based violence, anti-blackness, other forms of racism, as again the murder and slaughter of Asian Asian American women and of others in Atlanta, and the ongoing anti-racist, anti-Asian racism this last year plus that is actually just a continuation of centuries. Listeners, you understand history through lines. And so to be here today with you to really understand how can we in organizations, particularly higher ed, dismantle these forms of oppression, create structures to ensure liberation healing. And so as a consultant facilitator strategist, you do all this work to address systemic harm and create liberation. Thank you so much for joining me, Circus. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and I'm ex- particularly excited because you actually have taught me a lot about spades since the pandemic. We have a, <laughs> a mutual friend that started a gathering that I got to be a part of. That's and I, I am now a
2: <laughs> ardent
1: spades person when I show up. So can yep, you tell just...
2: We gotta struggle, we gotta play together.
1: Mm. So thank you for joining us. Can you just tell us a bit more about yourself and Mm -hmm. how you got in this and how you're doing in this time of pandemic and just national time of racial reckoning and
2: Mm -hmm. sexual
1: violence reckoning?
2: So So, a little bit more about me. So um, I will start out by saying I am Puerto Rican, Boricua. Uh, Sort of born and raised on the mainland. I think this is an important part of my uh, first sort of political awakening is really thinking about the colonial relationships between the United States and Puerto Rico, right? The fact that so many people don't even know Puerto Rico is part of the U.S., that if you're born on the island or born here, we're citizens, right? So I was uh, born on the mainland, Paterson, New Jersey <laughs> um, to a single mom who has, you know, who raised four children without necessarily speaking English. And so all of her struggles as a single mom navigating um, uh, systems, right? welfare system, social services. So a lot of the encounters with those systems have really shaped mm-hmm. my draw towards things like transformative justice, particularly all of the ways in which she was surveilled and the systems and those services tried to su- surveil her through us, mm-hmm. right? So I, I I often tell this and share this story where, um, I just had this recollection of um, a welfare um, agent coming and checking on the house and asking me questions about my mom's sexual life, right? And I was eight years old. And what was that about, right? So, so all of these encounters with these services have really shaped my entry into, into political activism and sort of my orientation towards TG, transformative justice, which we're gonna talk about in a minute. But to answer your other question, (laughs) um, and we can talk more about my background and such, but um, how am I doing in this time of pandemic? I'm actually, you know, I actually surprisingly feel hopeful. Mm -hmm. I think that, and I'll tell you why I feel hopeful. I think that the uprisings, uprisings this summer really put on the menu our need to start to radically reimagine the world we want to live in. I think that that moment that's not that's not a question anymore. The fact that we have so many young people demanding that we defund the police, that we reduce our reliance on violent state systems is hopeful to me. That it's part it's 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 at a moment where you know, I know that maybe even two years ago, many of us could not have even imagined this kind of persistent call. And so I feel hopeful in the sense that we have an opportunity right now to really explore what it would mean to to build that world. And I just feel really sort of oriented towards thinking about what that might look like. So... I
1: know two years ago, I didn't even know about defund the police and so many others. It's really since George Floyd's murder that I have really deepened my investment in dismantling racism, creating liberation. Anti-blackness was not a term that was on my radar, mm-hmm. even though I was doing work with whites. So I don't think I'm that different from other change agents on campus, particularly white that have been doing some work and now have this call for truly transformational culture change and how transformative justice might be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, So in these moments, I'm seeing uh, some rollback. I'm seeing leaders that this summer may have put out a statement and I'm committed. And even after the January 6th, uh, white supremacist domestic violence, not domestic violence, domestic terrorist insurrection, I wonder the same pullback we're seeing in Congress may also be in our organizations. And so if you were talking to senior leaders about the critical need to have this level of transformational change, re-envisioning, re-imagining our current and future, especially in the organizational level, what would you say to them? Why now and how do we have to commit to long-term systemic organizational change with transformative justice being a part of that?
2: Well, you know, I think part of, the, part of the place where I struggle, and I'm not gonna answer this question in general, I'm gonna think about the university setting that I'm thinking about, because to me, part of the issue has been that when we make these arguments about why it's important to do this work, it's often within the frames that are legible to these institutions. So there's all of this, like for me, there's a question about like, what are we asking for in this moment, right? The conversations about diversity are often framed in terms of issues of more representation and I think more while more representation is good and fine I think if it doesn't alter the conditions that lead to harmful like life you know and work conditions for people then we're not doing anything by adding more people of color into those spaces we haven't touched the root of the problem Right. I think we have to radically reframe our conversation, because often when we're talking to these organizations, this turn to social justice almost gets framed as if they're doing a favor, like they're doing us a favor by thinking about questions of social justice. And I actually don't think it's a favor. I think we need to start thinking about what is their um, obligation to reparations? What is the cultural obligations to reparations, how how can we do assessments of organizations where we track what is due? Because we're not, you're not doing me a favor when you start taking on this diversity and social justice conversation. What you, what we need to start talking about is how has your organization benefited from the extraction of labor, ideas, contributions of POC, and now what is your responsibility to pay back there? That, like those are the kinds of like organiz- organizational assessments I would like to do. <laughs> Where we're going in and saying, uh, here's your reparations report. Because <laughs> honestly, so much of the conversations are about, oh, we need to add a, a little more, we need to hire more people of color, but you haven't done anything to prepare the ground for what it means to, hire, to bring in folks into these spaces. And unless we're doing that work, you hiring more people often means introducing more people to harmful arrangements. So like in the context of the university, I see it all the time where we want to bring in more people of color as professors, right? But we don't want to look at the tenure process that makes it impossible for, for faculty of color to stay at an institution. We don't want to talk about the inequitable service loads, where if you're at a Hispanic serving, Hispanic serving institution, which I hate that term, mm-hmm. but you know, if you're at an HSI, and that's like my situation right now, um, I'm the only Latina in my department whose um, tenure, tenure track, women gender studies, right? I'm the only Latina in my department. And what that means is that I have students, both who are in my classes and who are also not in my classes, tapping me for all kinds of labor. And it isn't just the students. It's the institution itself that says, we have a diversity problem. We want people of color at the table, but they're not willing to create structures that sort of, give something back to the faculty helping you solve your problem. Because at the end of the day, the institution has a diversity problem. I don't have a diversity problem, right? So if I help you solve your problem through my labor, which by the way, is, becomes really challenging because what that means is often my, my intellectual work becomes diversity work when maybe that's not what I, what I had envisioned for my own career trajectory, but because the institution needs so much in that line, suddenly my intellectual labor, all, all of who I am sort of gets sort of you know, channeled into this diversity project that has nothing to do with, with my own vision for my own trajectory. So I think that these institutions don't plan for how to uplift the contributions of of variously situated people of color in the institution, right? And so I I think that it is important, but I think one of the challenges I have is thinking about its importance beyond a moral argument. Because I I just don't find that people are moved by more. I, I don't find that organizations or institutions are moved by that. So, um, so yeah, so there's the contributions that are, that are brought in and, and there's also like, you know, these arguments that when I, when I think about the world I want to live in, right. Um, it includes relationship building. It includes all of these things that so many organizations are not set up to do. (laughs) <laughs> so for me, there is something about thinking intergenerationally, at least at an institution, like what are the goals of the institution? And, and I don't know in general, but I know at universities, there's this assumption that we're developing the next generation of labor, right? Even if you take that that sort of base level conversation, um, I feel that that the institution has a responsibility to respond to the populations that show up at it. (laughs) So if nothing else, they do have that responsibility on a base level. And with that includes a whole bunch of skills. (laughs) So from my perspective, there's a value in thinking about those things. Um, And I'm still sort of marinating on whether or not I feel it's most important to translate it into the terms of the institution or whether or not we have to radically push back and reframe or put on the table what the values are that we have. So,
1: Exploiting the labor of folk of color and indigenous folk. And even as an institution, again, generically might say, we are here developing the next generation of leaders, the next generation of labor to be exploited by capitalistic systems. And Mm -hmm. so really blowing up the purpose of higher ed and asking people to reimagine, are we really, could we be a place where we are developing leaders, collaborators in the best sense to redesign, reimagine our future to truly meet the needs of all and end these four or five centuries of exploitation extraction of labor resources,
2: Whew. Yeah, just to give you an, uh, one concrete example from the institution, like universities everywhere have adopted this thing about land acknowledgements, right? So, okay, we're acknowledging that we're on this unceded territory, we're acknowledging that, but how many of us are actually using the institution to make sure that indigenous people are getting resources, acts, like how are we using the resources that we have at this institution beyond a performative land acknowledgement. That's one example, right? And And, reparation, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can think about what that looks like also, right, for African-Americans in this country. We gotta think about how we're using these institutions to repair those historical harms, um, especially if the institution continues to benefit from that stolen land, right? or that labor. So that's one example.
1: And I may be using reparations incorrectly. I was thinking of it broader. I know it's within for African-Americans and Blacks, but as you talk about indigenous folks, how many institutions are saying we owe, and so we want to work with elders of the regions where we are. How can we have a collaborative benefit, whether it's 100 spaces every year, 200, I don't know the answers, but having leaders really in that way of being of transformative culture, this is our purpose here, and repair, um, which may translate or at least be a way to move into also the work of uh, from restorative justice to transformative, transformative justice.
0: Mm-hmm
1: what I know is most organizations aren't even doing restorative justice. So I wondered if you could talk a bit as we move into break in about five or 10 minutes. Um, just what do you see as the current practices on organ when there is harm, whether it's individual or collective, whether it's, um, punishment-focused, however the frame you use. I know there's a word that begins with C, carceral, I think, which I still, I'm surprised I could pronounce. So if you could talk about what do you see in higher ed, what's problematic about it, and then that might take us to break, and then we come back to talk about restorative and uh, transformative.
2: (laughs) Yeah, So, so one thing, okay, so the way we tend to deal with harm at institutions, we can talk a little bit about that, is very carcerally oriented, right? In in, in the sense that it's all oriented towards punishment, right? And I understand how we got there, okay? For me, I think Part of the issue is that when we think about accountability, we only have a punitive model frame for thinking about accountability. That's part of the issue, right? So even in our social justice calls for accountability, that's all we have within our frame. The challenge with that is that over the long haul, the the systems that have been developed to dole out punishment tend to harm communities of color more (laughs) than they do um, the folks who are maybe causing harm in our communities, et cetera, so on and so forth. I think part of the reasons why we activate a punishment frame, and I'll just say this, and then we can talk about the distinctions between restorative and transformative justice as I see them, um, is that. One thing that we can think about, and I actually want us to really rethink what we think accountability is Mm. in general. I want to put that on the menu as something we need to talk about. But part of the reason why punishment becomes so attractive, and I I understand how this happens because I feel it in my body when you're on the side of the right, you're on the right side punishing people or whatever, is that punishment gets framed as an act of care. I I can... if I am punishing this person, I am showing you how much I care about this issue. Wow. So this, the, the harsher the punishment, the more I show I care. That's how we end up with these zero tolerance frames, right? And so when we do punishment, we're actually trading in an optics of care. We're showing that we are good people. We are on the right side of history by holding these other, by punishing these people for doing wrong. Um, the, the issue with that is um, it doesn't often get, at, we're so busy trading in this performance of care that we, we might fire somebody. We might throw somebody in jail. What we're doing there is we're not actually solving the root of the problem. What was the conditions that led to the harm in the first place? What we're doing there is we're outsourcing the problem to someone else's neighborhood. So good. So we throw them out. That's fine. It th- solves the problem temporarily, but it, it's an individualized response. We throw them out, and we actually don't talk about things like when we talk about gender-based violence. That's not that's not housed in any one person. That is part of everyday culture, right? When we talk about racism, we are born and raised and steeped in racism from the time we're you know come into this world. And then we're gonna act like it's an individual person's problem. So that's part of the issue with that sort of framing that we could punish individuals, but it uh, it doesn't touch the root of the problem. And that's where TJ and RJ are trying to sort of make a dent. And I'm reminded that even at folks that are trying
1: to do healing of uh, often disproportionate folks of color, indigenous folks are the ones that are held much more accountable in our discipline systems, whether it's Dean of Students, whether it's athletics, we could keep going, faculty, because until we whites have the capacity to dismantle racist attitudes, white supremacist beliefs in ourselves, our practices, we're just perpetuating, even if the system looks different, we are still perpetuating. So I think we have a few more moments. You wanna just begin looking at what is restorative justice? How might that be progress compared to the current systems? And then what is transformative justice? um,
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so when I talk about restorative justice versus transformative justice, I I wanna say that, and I say this everywhere I speak, those things exist on a continuum for me, okay? Um, I think First, I will say, I'll talk about transformative justice first. I think of transformative justice as a philosophy, as an ethic, and as a framework that seeks to address harm and violence outside of violent state systems, okay? So it is an abolitionist frame, okay? It is moving towards abolition, and it will... It will, it includes practices, creative interventions. There's no one way of, it's not like it is this. It is not a replication of the criminal justice system. So if we don't do courts, then we do a, a transformative justice process circle instead of the courts. No, it's, it's not contained within that. It's actually larger than that. And in that philosophy, there's this idea that justice has to be both individual and collective. What that means is that when someone causes harm, it is not just the problem of the two people, like the one person who caused harm and the person who was harmed. No, it is a collective project. It is neighbors, friends, families, comrades, colleagues have to start coming together and redefining what justice is and how to make things right together. Okay, so part of this move to sort of work outside of state systems is to figure out how can we start to get together to solve serious problems in our own communities, right? Serious Hmm. problems in our own communities. Um, Without state, without police intervention, without um, social workers, what, what what would it look like to do that? And how do we have to skill up to do that, okay? When we come back, there's going to be so
1: much more because listeners are saying, how do I do that in residence life, in a faculty department? Because every example of sexual assault, gender-based violence, racist dynamics, there's a culture and a climate, as you're saying, that actually if it's happening once, it's happening a thousand times a day. So how do we do it? The individual, group, and systemic level. As we go to break, doctor Circes Circus-Mendez, could you tell us, how can people find you? Because I, I think you're going to get lots of phone calls and emails if folks want to start learning and working with you and have you help them come help their organization really transform.
2: Yeah, so you can find me at uh, www.campustj.com and or um, you can email me at info at That's X-H-E-R-C-I-S dot com. Um, Or you can find me on Twitter at Exchange Ideas. Yeah, that's it. Those are my contacts.
1: (laughs) I can't wait to come back in just a few minutes to dive in much more deeper. How do we have transformative justice practices in complex organizations? doctor Circes Sources-Mendez, see you all in a few moments.
0: It's time to shake out your money-making truth on soul wisdom abundance with Jennifer Bloom, creating wealth from spiritual health on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show is more than your roadmap to success. It's your compass to abundance through joy and ease. Jennifer Bloom teaches you about the soul's relationship to money and wealth and how improving that relationship serves both you and the world. Learn more at JenniferBloom.com.
1: TransformationTalkRadio.com. Let the journey begin. Tune into the show Heart Change Consciousness with me, Dr. Trish Jarosher, as stories of inspired activism come to life. Listening to conversations with your favorite authors, change makers, and many more who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. Let's be inspired together through my show, Heart Change Consciousness, on TransformationTalkRadio.com.
0: Are you ready to shift your current beliefs about death from debilitating pain and loss? Follow Angie Corbett Kuyper as she shares that through choice, present moment awareness, and keeping an open mind. Anything is possible, even in death. Tune in to Beyond Proof Radio with Angie, redefining death and loss every first Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more, visit BeyondProof.com. Get empowered. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy O'Bear. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com. Imagine you are a ball of steel, smooth, small, and cool to the touch. Your life will soften you with fire. You will take hits that shape you.
2: You will be forged into a powerful, purposeful work of art. Tune in to Forging a Life with Coach Christine Clark. joining Dr. Pat Basili in a three-part series, Truths in the Creation of Katana, on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Christine Clark. A gifted, engaging speaker and trainer who has forged her life in the fires of self-employment will take you on a journey to exploring the internal, mental, and emotional blocks that stand between us and a life of significance through an analogy of the process of crafting a traditional Japanese sword
0: or katana. For more information about Christine, visit sunglowtransformation.com.
2: Can't get enough of Eye of Soul Radio? Join Psychic Medium Jamie every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Transformation Talk Radio. Take a deeper look at the raw side of spirit. Nothing is off limits. Connect with lost loved ones and explore these vulnerable subjects with the compassionate guidance of Psychic Medium Jamie. You are not alone. Eye of Soul, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, only on TransformationTalkRadio.com.
1: You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. So excited for more conversation with Dr. Circeus Mendez of Transformative Justice Work. And if you all want to find all kinds of other resources to support this social justice, racial justice work, if you uh, go to the Transformation Change Radio site, you'll see access to my design and facilitation course as well as free access to Navigating Difficult Situations course. All my books, but I'm not racist, is the one that's most related probably today, Um, as well as on my website, drkathyaberg.com backslash resources. Lots of open source resources for leading white accountability groups, as well as all of my books our free downloads and many other resources. And the overlap with Dr. Circes Mendez's work around transformative justice, dismantling racism, really shifting the climate and the culture that has fueled and continues to perpetuate gender violence, uh, anti-blackness, sexual assault. Dr. Circes Mendez, welcome back. Thank you. (laughs) So could you just, tell us more about transformative justice, how it all started, what and just ways people might be able to rethink systems, structures to really repair harm.
2: Yes. So, so before we get there, I want to, I want to finish the thing we were talking about right before, which is the transformative justice versus restorative justice question. And so I just want to make sure folks understand the distinction. I think that um, it's really important to note that transformative justice does begin in communities of color and it begins with trans folks. It begins with very structurally marginalized people who have sort of recognized that calling the police has actually increased the harm in their communities. And so the response is to say, well, if we can't do that, then we shouldn't be left with nothing, right? So people have tried to create their own responses to to harm because of that. With restorative justice, restorative justice has its root in indigenous communities. And I think it's, that's important to know because as it's gotten increasingly appropriated into institutions like schools, um, it, has, it has altered the way it is practiced. So the way it is currently practiced in the United States, I think that um, it's different from how people are thinking about transformative justice because Restorative justice is embedded in school systems that work with criminal justice systems. Mm -hmm. So what is often the case, it will say you got in trouble for X, Y thing. You've been found guilty and you can either do the regular criminal justice punishment or you can take this restorative justice track. And what that means is that they're leveraging the punishment of the state to get participation in the RJ track. It's not to say that people are not transformed by their participation in the restorative justice track. And I do see restorative justice, even as it's embedded in schools, as being a really important move towards harm reduction. So I am not, you know, I am not critiquing it for it's like embeddedness. I just say that RJ in that formation um, is, I'll take it over the criminal justice. Sure, I'll take it. And if anything that moves us closer to an, abo- an abolitionist frame, I'll take it. Because <laughs> that's what we have to do. We have to keep just building up options, right? Um, I, other, the other thing I want to mention is that I, I do see them as asking different kinds of questions. So, for instance, you know philosophically restorative justice might say, how can we restore the relationship or repair the relationship to what it was before the harm happened transformative justice says okay that's fine, but if the relationship only works when it's harmful then we want to transform the relationship. So like you can think about patriarchal relationships this way, right? Like, like as long as you follow my instructions, we're good. But it, that's, that's not what transformative justice is trying to do, right? It's trying to say, it, well, we want to destroy the patriarchal dynamics of this relationship. So it's often thinking about not just the individual relationships, but it's also thinking about the structural conditions that they also want to shift. So it's like taking restorative justice and putting a hug around it, (laughs) as it were. So that's how I I think about that. I also, um, that sense of it comes from this organization called Philly Stands Up. And there's all these incredible organizations where I have learned an enormous amount um, about transformative justice from. So, and some of those organizations, I do wanna sort of name because they're really important to name your lineage and how, how you've come to know your things. So the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective is one really important site um, for, with Mia Mingus, who is a dope um, you know, dis- disability justice activists, um, and TJ activists. Uh, Mimi Kim and Creative Interventions, Miriam Kaba and Project Nia. Uh, all There's all of these, and Just Practice with Shira Hassan. There's all of these incredible activists who have taught me an enormous amount about, about this. Okay, so now that we have these distinctions, I see them as on a continuum. I will say that no institution that has legal relationships like No university can actually do transformative justice. So that's important to say. But what we can do, because it's abolitionist, right? So as long as there's mandated reporting, you can't have a transformative justice possibility in the frame. But what you can do is you can take transformative justice values and principles, and you can bring them in to help people reorient how they're they're responding to harm. And that's what I do. So that's what the Campus TJ Project is about, is really taking TJ values, principles, and practices and saying, how can we use these values and principles and practices to radically transform how we're thinking about our responses to sexual assault, how we're thinking about our responses to gender-based violence, and how we're responding to microaggressions daily. How do we think about the relationship between microaggressions and sexual assault? Like, so that we don't hold them as separate in the frame. Like, what is the connection between these things, right? So, yes. Okay. Now that I've said all of that, (laughs) I will go to your question about, like, how we got here. (laughs) Which is to say, um, so I was working at Michigan State in 2016. And I am someone who, because I teach controversial issues in my class and it's always feminist stuff and it's always women gender studies issues, I am someone that students, particularly marginalized students on campus, whether they be queer, gender nonconforming, trans-identified, students of color, BIPOC, all these students tend to want to divulge information to me. Mm. And I'm a mandated reporter, Ooh. right? So, so I find myself in this situation so often where I have to be like, I know you trust me, but uh, you know, here I am in this non-consensual relationship to the state where whatever you tell me, I'll have to share. And so, and often when they're coming to me, many, many of them don't want to go through a Title IX process. And there are very good reasons why they don't, right? It's not for nothing that so many students and and it's not just students. It's also faculty, faculty of color who, who find themselves not wanting to and for very good reason, don't trust that these processes will be able to hold them because of who they are. And so... You know, if the person who's harming you is also part of the community of color Ooh. at a predominantly white institution, the, a lot of these students understand that in their bodies and don't necessarily want a, a punitive option, but that's not on the menu, right? And so I found myself at MSU asking these questions about mandated reporting. I'm like, why why is mandated reporting the only option when we're thinking about survivors? What, don't We clearly have one perception of who the survivor is, that we would force people who have been structurally harmed in their daily lives, in their communities, they come to these institutions and all of a sudden we're throwing them in front of police or like putting them under these investigative processes, which the truth of the matter is, Many of them didn't wanna go through. So I started asking these questions. And as I started asking these questions, all of a sudden this huge case, this Larry, the Larry Nasser case with over 250 survivors, right? Wow. Erupts on the scene. And I suddenly have to be put in this position where I have to really, really think about what I'm saying because for me to make an argument or to start to think about what it would look like to respond to sexual assault, not with police and not with prison, in that context was like, like a challenge. I'm not gonna lie, it wasn't like, it wasn't like that was an easy thing to be like, Oh yeah, no. And I'm not trying to save Larry Nasser. Like, let's, let's not get it twisted. <laughs> I'm not interested in salvaging him or anything like that. But one of the things I learned in that process was they did, they went through the criminal justice route. They spent billions, oh, bill, billion dollars with, when you calculate, when you calculate, the the there was at least 11 people that supposedly knew about it had been reported to when you take you collectively put all those cases together and not just the nasser case i mean not just nasser himself right but all the subsequent the president of the university all of these cases right and you think about the amount of money that was spent on trying to make sure that this person goes to jail, but none of it, very little of it was spent on healing services for the survivors, on addressing the ripple effect of harm in that community. Mm. I cannot tell you, the town of Lansing was completely devastated Mm. because we had, many, many of those survivors had remained in the city. But it wasn't just if we treat it as an individual situation, we don't take into account the impact on parents, on brothers and sisters. I mean, this was something that like impacted everybody. Right. And so to see the impact and recognize that nothing in our criminal justice system thinks about the well-being of all the people that were impacted, it really emphasizes why we need to radically reimagine what we think justice is. Because yes, he went to jail and he, he didn't even go to jail for that particular violation. He, he went to jail for something else. Um, but he did go to jail, prison. And, and then at the end of this case, there was this moment where people were like, he went to prison, justice was served. Don't you feel healed? And you could see all of these survivors, it was like, okay, now he's in prison. Now what? Right? So it goes to show you that like all like the criminal justice only gives you one model that doesn't necessarily include healing, well-being, or even on more lower stakes cases, a pathway to transform. Mm. Because the truth of the matter is we can throw hit, we could throw people in jail all day. prison we can throw people in prison all day but we have to ask ourselves does that make better human beings like (laughs) like are we sending someone to a place to reflect on their actions to really like no what we're doing in that mode and in that moment is we're creating a um we're creating a situation where that person actually has to think about survival self-survival There's very little space to think about, you know, to have reflection around what you did when you're going to prison, because you really do have to think about how you're going to survive there. And it's, it goes back to you. So, so anyway, I started asking these questions. And then um, when this erupted, the dean at the university um, came to me and had come from Penn State. Wow. So he had come from another school that had had a huge sexual assault scandal with the Sandusky case, saw that Michigan State was making similar moves and said, we have to do something different. And I think you might have something to offer here. Hmm. And then that's how we got into this conversation about how far are you willing, how far are you willing to go? (laughs) Uh, and, and so we started to do this work where we're really looking at the root of a lot of harm at the institution and thinking about how to start to address those roots. How to, who needs to be skilled up and how to, to, to deescalate harm, to you know, shift, right? To create safety and support. How do we have to reimagine support etc, and so on and so forth. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to stop talking for a minute. <laughs> well, this could be three hours, and we won't be done.
1: So I would love you back. If you could, in our few minutes left, talk about, so what are some of those reimagined transformational structures, training, and you particularly have my heart around the hundreds of individuals harmed and their community. So, and then I'm also thinking everyone who heard about it or had to listen to these stories. So I'm thinking the initial response. So for whatever you can share of helping people really complexly think if you were going to do a systemic transformational justice intervention, these are the areas to be thinking about or whatever you want to talk about.
2: Actually, I, I love that question. I, 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 when I think about the areas that we need to think about from a transformative justice lens, you know, I have benefited from, from this framing that um, Mariam Kaba sort of shared with me during one of, the, one of the workshops we did. So when I think about four areas we need to look at, really, well, there are four areas. The first area is the survivor, okay? How are we creating, the first question we need to ask is how are we creating safety for the survivor? What, can can the survivor name what that looks like for them? We don't often give survivor an opportunity to name what that might look like for them. We do the one size fits all. So we might take a survivor out of the classroom in in the name of safety. But what that means is we're we're isolating the survivor and that doesn't feel safe, right? How can we create a sense of agency around what the survivor might want? So if a survivor doesn't want mandated reporting, what other options are we offering them, right? Um, And and actually the mandated reporting has nothing to do with the survivor's well being. It's about liability. We don't wanna lose federal funding. So we wanna talk about how we're in compliance and that's what Title IX is about. It's about making sure we're in compliance. It's not about the survivor's needs. So we might, we might, we might, you know, a safety protocol in the university might be a no contact order, right? That's an example of a safety protocol. But the truth of the matter is, we can't actually, um, we can't actually make sure that that happens, right? We can't actually enforce it. So, so why are we, why are we creating safety protocols that we can't enforce, right? Um, agency, we're not, giving, we're not giving survivors a lot of agency. How do we create the conditions where a survivor feels like they belong? When people come forward, they're, they're taken out of classes, they're, they're put aside, all of a sudden, their communities are questioning them, right? Like, is the, did this really happen, blah, 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 all this stuff. And we're not actually creating an, a, an environment where people can actually feel like they're believed, they belong, right? um and so that's one example the second area we need to look at is the person who caused harm are we creating pathways for them to transform their behavior that and we don't we don't have that we have punishment but we can get rid of somebody like this this happens all the time with with faculty who are problematic they get suspended for a year They disappear for a year. And during that time, no one has any idea what they're working on. Then they come back and they're like and people are like, why did you disappear? No one understands silence. There's a lot of silence. And then when they come back, the person who was harmed because they don't know what they were working on, it all surfaces again. Hmm. So if we're not developing pathways for transformation, we can't really we're not doing anything in the punitive frame because they're not actually working on anything. The third area is what is the community responsibility? And this is a very TJ thing, like how many of us have watched, witnessed things happen, microaggressions in faculty meetings daily, and no one says anything, right? That collective witnessing Transformative justice says, okay, no, anytime there's harm in our community, that is an opportunity for all of us to get better. It isn't just that one person's responsibility. We are part of the conditions that allowed that to happen. So what needs to shift there? And then the fourth area is the structural conditions. What, how is the structure set up for this harm to continuously happen? And one example of that is, with like these, we have these value systems in our universities that if you are a very successful grant writer or you are someone who's very well published, you become less accountable. You become untouchable in the system, right? So we have to, we have to shift those value systems so that just because you're good at that stuff doesn't mean you're not responsible for the people you harm in the space. So, so that's, that's the fourth area, thinking about the structural conditions, right? And so we have, we have units. One example is we have units actually talking about what are the values that are guiding their decision making, and how can those values be shaped by transformative justice in terms of like thinking about, um, uh, you know, for example, when we have harm in our units. How is it that we need to become responsible to each other? Can we create networks in our units to respond to conflict? So we don't have to escalate through a grievance process, but that we learn how to develop communication skills, (laughs) deescalate, identify microaggressions when they're happening and so on and so forth within the units. And how do they have to look differently depending on the discipline? And I'll give you one last example and then I'll wrap it up, which is to say, um a perfect example of that is nationally we have um history departments right now who teach historical material that has the n-word in it this is an example right the discipline itself and and there's all these academics who want to hold on to that in the name of academic freedom well transformative justice will say okay But if you want to make sure that students of color feel a sense of belonging at your institution, how do we have to hold that up to complicate the discussion on academic freedom? Which which value is gonna guide how you teach? So anyway, that's one. Yeah, go ahead. And if you choose to do that
1: and don't decolonize your curriculum, which might be a great conversation in the future, then there will be a TJ process that you will be a part of to repair the harm and shift the system and the practice. Dr. Circes Mendez, please tell us again how folks
2: can find you. Whew, thank you so much. So you can find me at uh, www.campustj.com or you can email me at info at or you can find me on Twitter at, at exchange
1: ideas. I am full of such gratitude. I've learned so much. I have so much more I wanna ask. We will be back next month with President Lee Goodson of Tulsa Community College, looking at systemic culture change, working within systems, outside systems. How do you lead as a president with equity, social justice, racial justice lens sources from the bottom of my
0: soul. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me, Kathy.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to Dr. Kathy Obear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change. Motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobeir.com.